Find your place in 2 Peter. We'll stand in just a second. And we will conclude this, uh, this letter tonight. And it's been a challenge to me personally. I hope it has been to you as well. And Peter has one last thought for us that, Lord willing, we'll be able to apply to our hearts this evening. So I want to back up in our reading. We're going to pick up the verse 12 is where we left off last week. But let's back up to verse 11, and then we'll read through the end. Peter writes, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of, the, of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable, rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray tonight. Lord, we ask that tonight, as we meet once more to look at Your Word, that there would be glory given to You in our lives and with the effort that we give to the opportunities and time you've gifted us with. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts again tonight as you have already today. And Lord, let you bless um, the time we share. Help us to find, uh, Lord, truth in your word that can help us to be better people and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Peter here is winding down his letter and his life. In chapter 1, he told us that his life would end soon. The Lord had revealed that to him. He wouldn't die of natural causes. He would die a martyr's death. And so like a father imparting his final words to his children, he is telling his spiritual children what matters most to him. And so he's coming to the end of, of this letter, and shortly he would here die. And these final words mean something precious to him, and he hopes will last uh, forever in the hearts of those that would hear it. He has warned them in this letter about spiritual dangers that exist. That there are people in the church and they are teaching and living lives that are contrary to God's Word. And the danger in that isn't just that they're doing that. It's that it looks attractive and it looks envious and that it looks like the easier and better way. And that alarmed him. And he was telling them, don't be tempted to follow that path. It may look better on the outside, but I promise you it leads to a dark and terrible place. And if you follow that direction... And if you go that way, at one point he referred to it as the way of Balaam. You go that direction, you will suffer extreme consequences for it. And those people, they will. And then he's reminded them of what they've already been taught. They knew the truth they needed to know. They just needed to internalize it and do it. And so he's reminding them of these things. Namely, the eschatological truth of the parousia. And that is a term 
that is used to define the day of the Lord. And, and pastor, I'm sure, will preach much more of that as we go through the book of Revelation. But the day is going to come when Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. Not as a baby this time. He's coming back as a king, and he's coming back as a judge. And it's going to be, the Bible says, a dark day, a terrifying day, a very sober, sober day. And God's wrath that has been stored up against sin, against Satan, against the demonic hordes and the sins of mankind will be eventually executed upon those that inhabit this earth. And so now to these people that he loves, that he's poured his life into, and that he has lived for, he gives them final instruction and final encouragement. And he gives them motivation for doing right. And one of those motivations is simply this, hey, let's do right so that we escape the wrath of God. Who needs that? Who wants to experience that? It would be a lot better to be on the other side of things. Let's not put ourselves in a position where God himself is judging us and angry at us and we experience his vengeful wrath. But it's not just escaping the wrath of God, it should be not just the, that be the only motivation. We also have the motivation that one day God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And he is bringing with him and, and, and to you and I reward for the opportunities that we have today to do good and right. And that day is coming. And this place that he's creating, it's a place the Bible says where righteousness dwells is what he writes. There is no sin there. The Bible teaches us that there's no sorrow, there's no tears, and there's no opportunity to do wrong. It's a place where righteousness dwells. It's a new heaven and it's a new earth. And it will be as real to us as this moment is one day. And it won't have an end. And it's not going to have a night. It's going to go on forever and ever. And since the Lord is returning and that day is imminent, it is coming. Mark my words. Mark God's word. It is coming. We need to be ready for that day. And so what we do between now and that day has eternal reward and consequence attached to it. And so in verse 14, Peter says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Found of him is the imagery of a court of law. So a judge would look at someone and find them what? Guilty or not guilty? found of him. The judge finds you guilty or not guilty. And here's the question tonight. One that we need to do real business with and, and think about beyond this moment because it's coming for you. How is the Lord going to find you? Because he is going to find you. This isn't, this isn't hide and seek kind of find. Like, oh, hey, I found you. Didn't know where you were. You were lost. I found you. That's not what this is about. This is the connotation of God, Jesus Christ, the king and the judge, looking at your life and judging it. And how is the Lord going to find you? And Peter challenges us in this verse 14 that the Lord might find us in two ways, in the first, or three ways, I'm sorry. And the first is this, that we might be found of him in peace. It's the idea of peace of reconciliation. The idea that we might do all we can do in our hearts to be right with God. 
That when we're led astray and we sin, that we get back to where we need to be. That we're constantly course correcting in our life. We're, we're listening to instruction. We're letting his word guide us. And, and we're, staying, we're staying right with him, found in peace of him, reconciled to God. And to the degree that we are able, also reconciled with each other. That there wouldn't be anger and angst and tension between us, between you and your spouse, or your children, or those in your church family, or those in this world. That in your heart you would settle those things. You can't always fix every situation and you can't fix other people. But you can do your part to be found of peace in him. So that when he comes back and he looks at you and he might say something like this, blessed are you as a peacemaker. That you've done all you can to reconcile with God and, and those others around you. That you're not living a life of agitation and angst in your relationships. But in your heart, there's a serenity and a peace with mankind and with your fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. And then second, he challenges us that we might be found of him without spot. Peter said in chapter 2, verse 13, just a few verses ago about the false teachers, he said they, they have spots they are, he said, and blemishes. And now he takes that language and he reverses the application of it and says in you, when God finds you, May you be found of him in peace and without spot. It's hard to know exactly if Peter may have or may not have been referencing here a sacrificial lamb like in the Old Testament that was supposed to be presented to God as a spotless lamb. Or maybe even as Jesus Christ and the Bible describes him that he was he was spotless in that way. I, I do know this. That when I eat spaghetti with a white shirt on, it is inevitable, there is going to be spots. Because we understand that, right? There's going to be spots. And it's really frustrating. And it's really irritating to find spots on oneself. Spots and the idea of it are tarnishes. It's disgrace. It's embarrassment. And the challenge here is clean up your life. Those areas in your life that you look at and go, boy, that's, I shouldn't be living that way. Shouldn't be thinking that way. Shouldn't be doing that thing. Clean it up. Be found in peace with others and with God. Be found, secondly, without spot. And then he says, be found of him that in, a, in a way that's blameless. It is impossible to live a perfect life. And that is, will be attained one day in Christ's presence, but not until then. But the idea, I think, here is just when you mess up, get it right. Be without fault for the problems of the world. Not contributing to them. Do your part to help solve the tensions and the anger and the pain that's in this, li in this life. Take responsibility for your small corner of the universe and do all you can on your job and in your home and in your church to do right. Put in a sincere effort at not sinning. Then Peter continues in verse 15. Read with me. He says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, so he references and even leverages here the authority of Paul behind the words that he's writing as a fellow apostle and whom these people would have been under his teaching as well. Verse 16, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Then I love this next phrase. In which are some things hard to be understood. <laughs> Can you identify with that tonight? How many of you read Romans and just like that was a breeze, right? <laughs> You know, there's this recognition by Peter. He's kind of like, hey, he's, he's kind of smart, right? And he writes some things that are hard to be understood. 
Okay, so what were these people doing? Well, he, he continues to write. He says, which they that are unlearned and unstable, they rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Okay, in verse 15 he is saying this, God is still to this day, because he's long-suffering, holding open the door of salvation. Okay, God is holding this door, but God suffers long. He loves mankind. He wants sin to end. He is ready to take control, to redeem our hearts and our lives. And those of us that are saved in Christ Jesus say, Lord, hasten the day. But he still is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith in him. Okay, so what's God doing? Well, he's leaving open this door, this opportunity, because he's long-suffering. But the door is closing. And one day, when we're least prepared for it, the door's going to slam closed. And the long-suffering of God, it will come to an end, and it's a promise. And he says even Paul speaks about these things. And yes, they can be hard to understand, but you have to understand them. It's not an excuse for ignorance. It's a reason for study and work. So we say things like, well, the Bible's just too hard to read. It puts me to sleep. That's not an excuse. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you get to live like that. Well, I don't get it, so I'm just not going to worry about it. No, it's a reason for you to dig deeper, to ask questions, to read more, to pray more, to ask God for clarity. In, in that striving is growth. That agitation in our hearts and minds helps us to become better. And Peter says these people don't understand it. And so what do they do? Well, they take the words written by Paul. They take in the words that I've written and they rest them. It's with a W, rest. It means to twist or to extort. The idea is they take these words that we've written, that Paul's written, these words that I've written, and they take them out of context and they just apply them however they want to. They are literally distorting the truth. We don't get to take the Bible and say what we want to or what we understand about it and take it out of context. No, we take God's word and say, God, what do you mean? I'm going to apply what you said, literally. And if my ideas conflict with this, well, then I'll change. And as I develop in my understanding of God's word, and, and even, even at my age, there are things I used to believe I don't believe anymore because I'm not convinced the Bible teaches them. And there are things I didn't used to believe that today I believe because of my understanding of the Bible. We need to change, not change God's word to twist and to extort it. And he says they rest it. He says, so they're taking parts they want to take and they're leaving out the rest and they don't even understand it. Don't teach something you don't understand. Be careful with this book. And then verse 17, he writes, ye therefore beloved, Seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So here's the final warning. We can have solid confidence in our salvation, but that confidence can lead us to presume upon God's grace. And so here we are, and we get saved, and we know we're going to heaven, and all of a sudden we can relax our morality. That's what these people did. We can indulge in our freedoms because that's what these people did, and they were falling. And he says, don't take advantage of God's grace. It's, God's grace is a reason to live more for him, not a reason to live less for him. And if we're not careful and aware of the error of the wicked 
we too will look at their life and be led away, and we too, he says, will fall from our own steadfastness. And then verse 18, he says this, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And this perhaps is the key to the entire letter. Peter just winds this down and he puts that plane down and he just lands it hard. He opened in chapter 1 with an emphasis on growth and now he concludes with the same emphasis in chapter 3. He says specifically to grow in grace and in knowledge. Grace is the idea of favor, of goodwill, of kindness, of disposition, to oblige other people to both accept that and to give that. We are literally conduits of God's grace, and it's not something we just have or not have. It's something we are to grow in so that we get better at it. Because growth, we can go forward in our grace, and we can go backward in our, in our gracelessness. We are to grow in it. And grace is something that we're to be strong in, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's sufficient for all the needs that we have. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 12, spoke about all the hardships of his life. And he was saying, even in all of the things I've gone through, God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. God's grace allows us to give, even when it's hard to do. And we have little to give. It enables us to be generous. It enables us to sting in our hearts, even through difficult seasons of life. That's what grace does. And the list goes on and on and on. And Paul says, I want you to grow in grace. But don't just grow in grace. Also grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is a depth to God's Word that no matter how many times you read it, and no matter how many times you hear it preached, And no matter how many lessons you hear, there is a depth to this word, to the stories in it, to every book that's written that will always fill you. It'll give you new application. It'll give you new understanding. And you'll you'll read it again and say, I never saw that before. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and of the word of God is what he's saying. It'll challenge you no matter how much you know about this book. It will always, always challenge you. We can't get enough of it. And knowledge, it comes from hearing it. It comes from reading it. It comes from studying it. But knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. Knowledge without grace is cold. It's calculating. And grace without knowledge is shallow and weak Christianity. You don't just need grace. It's too soft. You don't just need knowledge. It's too hard. And he says, you put those things together. Well, you have a beautiful foundation for a godly, pleasing life to God, a strong church, and the right direction for which which you're to, to head when you combine those two. This letter from Peter was written to change us, to make us different and better people. He has given us in this last chapter insight into the end times. And he placed the full weight of all his apostolic authority on making us understand that the day of the Lord, the parousia, the judgment of God, it's real and it is coming. The decisions we make in this life impact the next one. They will last forever. There is a finality and permanence to every choice we spend. 
How we spend our time, what we do with our dollars, the thoughts we think in our heart, the actions we take, how we judge others, how we, the things we do, the things we don't do, there is a permanence to them. And one day, through death or Christ's return, our opportunities are going to end. The sand runs out and the clock stops. And if we're not guarded, we can believe everything written by Peter, everything about the end times. We can agree with it and it can have no effect on our attitude or our behavior. Just because we affirm this and say it's real doesn't change us. Eschatology as a doctrine is something to not just believe. It's something to experience, to internalize. And so he ends with this challenge. Now is the time to grow. Now is the time to make an impact. He's given us a lot of negative advice and negative warnings about not failing. But what is the counterpart to not failing? Forward progress in the Christian life. The answer to not failing the answer to not falling, the answer to not going astray and going in a direction we ought not go is this, grow. You need to grow. Growth is the antidote to not failing. And there are two ways that you might fall. There are two ways you might fail. And the first you might fail, way you might fail is that you fall from a position of strength. And this is where many of us can be guilty of sometimes. Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, is a solid foundation. He's a solid rock. And those who build their lives on him are building on the basis of a firm foundation. And while the solid rock in your life will never move, he will never change. Sometimes we can. And we do. Just because you are or were standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and building your life on him does not mean that you always will. You can't fall from salvation but you can fall from being steadfast. This platform is, is secure. It's solid, if you will. And this is what Paul's talking about. The platform's not going anywhere right now. But I can. And if I get too close, and if I'm preaching too passionately, and I'm not paying attention, boom, I can fall off the foundation. That doesn't, mean I lose my, that doesn't mean I lose my salvation. But I can fall. I can fail. Peter says, from my steadfastness, this is the place where I'm secure. These people had fallen, and so can we. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stands. You need to be careful, especially you that think you're the most secure. He says, take heed, lest ye fall. The only foundation that has any security strength to it is Jesus Christ, not you. And the antidote to not falling is growth. There is no coasting in the Christian life. We don't get to take a break. There is no vacation from morality. There is no we don't get to take time off from, from not serving Christ. We are Christians. It's part of our identity. And if we are going to not fall, we need to be growing. We need to be better and better people. But the second way we can fail and fall is that we never grow strong in the first place. With children, there is something called a failure to thrive. And those of you who are parents and had children, had them in the hospital, you've heard those terms before. 
What is failure to thrive? Well, technically, it's defined as decelerated or arrested physical growth. Child's not growing strong enough. Child's not, not, not on pace with, the ch- with, with, with these growth charts, and there begins to be some concern there. I've asked Peter to put um, Hebrews chapter 5 on the screens tonight for us. Paul wrote these words, and he said, For when? For the time. Ye ought to be teachers. He's saying this. There was a time when you're supposed to be strong in a position of imparting strength to other people. He says, ye have need that one teach you. So you're supposed to be strong, but you still need to be given strength. He says again, which pray the first principles of the oracles of God and are become as have need of milk and not of strong meat. I am so grateful for the day that my children transitioned from milk and mushy food to real food. And I had to stop, I, had, I could stop spoon feeding them and they could feed themselves. This is what he's saying. You're supposed to be feeding yourselves. You're supposed to be contributing and helping to feed other people. And here I am still spoon feeding you. Okay, verse 13. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. There are a lot of Christians that are addicted to milk. And they're still, forgive me, sucking their thumb. Verse 14, he says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What was wrong with these people to whom Paul was writing? And if you can't tell, this was an insult. A failure to thrive. Here's a Christian growth chart. And here's the day you got saved. And a couple years down the road, there's these check marks. You should be about, you should, you know, you should be about here after a few years. And a few more years, you should be about here. And after a few more years, you should be about here. And he said, you guys have been saved for this long, and you're still back here. That's a failure to thrive. It's unhealthy, it's ungodly, and it's not the intent of God's word or, his, or what he has sacrificed himself for. For some of us, years can go by, and there's no growth in our grace. We're not more gracious. We're less. There's no kindness, no generosity, no, no goodness to, to our spouse or those around us. By this stage in your Christian life, you should be being a solution to the problems of others. And instead, you are burdening others with your problems. You should be the one helping other couples. You should be the one discipling others. You should be the one that's in a position of strength. And instead, you're still over here needing someone to feed you milk. Paul says, that's not okay. And Peter says, you need to grow. We age when we get older. And for too many of us, we're not any better spiritually. And that is not the goal of the Christian life. Peter himself got better as he aged. You look at the young Peter back in the days of Jesus, (laughs) the night of his crucifixion. And Jesus says, Peter, that chicken's going to crow. Because that's what you are. You a chicken. And he did. 
Peter wept in a shame. He went back to his old vacation. But that's not where Peter stayed. Peter thought to himself, I've grown up. These three years with Christ have made me a spiritual giant. And Jesus, it's you and me, buddy. We got this. We'll hang tight together. Moment of temptation. Moment of trial. He was back to where he was before. But he didn't stay there. He took a few steps back. And then he took giant leaps forward. And by the time he writes this letter, he himself is ready to die a martyr's death. And when they come to crucify him, he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. Do it to me upside down. That's maturity. And that's growth. But for too many of us, there's no growth in our grace. And there's no growth in our knowledge. See, for many of us, we should be, at this stage of life, more empathetic. We should care more about eternity. We should love God more. We should be a better example of service. We should be more generous more loving. Our testimony should get stronger and our name better. Our light should be shining brighter than it is. We should have more wisdom. We should be more committed and more involved with what matters most. But for many of us, we're no better off today than we were five years ago. No better off today than we were ten years ago. And if you were to ask someone close to you, hey, am I growing? It's, I, I don't see it. I don't see you any, as any better than you were a few years ago. No growth in, growth in grace. No stretching in our knowledge. We don't listen better. We don't work at having a better marriage. We don't deny ourselves. We don't pray selflessly. We spend little to no time thinking about eternity. And Peter's answer to all of this is you need to grow. You need to grow. And you need to grow in two specific areas. You need to grow in grace and you need to grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you should not stop that process. Growth, though, is only going to happen when you make it happen. Too many of us are waiting on someone else to get better. Waiting on, you know, better Sunday night sermons. Wait till this series is over, and then I'll start growing again. Waiting on our spouse to grow up. Waiting until the kids are out of the home. Waiting on this circumstance to get better. It's not okay. And it's not right. Growth only happens because you make a decision in your heart and you determine that you are going to make it happen. In chapters 1 and in chapter 3, Peter said it takes diligence. You need to do it. You need to go forward. Peter had grown and as an old man, he was still growing. You can grow old and not get old in your heart. Paul said it this way, the outward man perishes. If you look at my hair, the outward man perishes, right? But the inward man is renewed day by day. What does that mean? It means tomorrow I need to be a better version of myself than I am today. And if I take a step back, I need to stick, I need to be determined and with diligence say, I'm going to take another step forward. I'm not staying there. Too many of us take a step back and we stay there. And instead of advancing, we take another step back. And pretty soon we're in a worse state than we were before. You don't need all your problems solved and you don't need your relationships fixed. You need to be a better person. You need to listen to what you're being told. You are reminded constantly 
You need to grow in the knowledge of God through his word and godly counsel and then apply it. He says, give diligence to these things. Diligence is steady in application to business. It's constant in effort or exertion to accomplish what is undertaken. It's attentive. It's industrious, not idle or negligent. It's applied to persons. That's the dictionary definition. It's just, I, I am determined I'm going to be better. And when I take a step back, that's not okay. I, I'm going I'm to fix this part of my life. And I'm going to do what I need to to be, to be kinder. And I, I'm going to react better. And I'm not going to be so angry. And I, I'm going to grow in grace. And, and I'm going to grow in giving grace and receiving grace. I'm going to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And look how far I've come. And oh man, I blew it here. Oh, I blew it there. But I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to grow in grace. And I'm going to grow in knowledge. And, and look, I'm, I'm further than I was the last time I failed. And I failed again. But I'm going to keep going forward. And that's the idea. This is the life Peter modeled for his people and for us tonight. Am I back on? Yeah. Okay. Let me, I'll, take, I'll take it, Andrew. Just leave it here in case I need it again. I preached the battery pack off there. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Growth is not automatic. And nothing happens without it. You don't take a packet of seed from Lowe's and go throw it in your backyard and have carrots overnight. You don't get Christian fruit without constant effort and, ex and exertion. No one is going to grow you. Your wife is not going to make you a better man. Get over it. You have to decide to get big. This is what we do on Father's Day. We just be mean to men, all right? You have to decide that no matter what happens, you're going to commit your life to what matters. Stop waiting for time to grow. Start now. When you make the choice to grow, you give, your, you give the greatest gift you can give to others. You give the greatest gift you can to, your, to God. And you give the greatest gift you can to self. You say, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm going to grow. You become a blessing to everyone around you, to your God, and to your own self. God made you for fellowship. He created Adam and Eve, and he gave them the gift of a perfect world. What did he get out of it? What did, he, what did he want with all that effort? Why did he work all these days? Why did, he pour his, why did he pour so much attention and thought into creating a world, creating a man, creating a woman, putting him in this garden? Why? And the answer is, is easy. He wanted fellowship. That's what he got out of it. He got to take some time of his day, and they got to take time of, of their day, and they got to spend time together. Sin has changed a lot of things. But God's ultimate plan of redemption is still centered around Him getting to walk with you. It's why He made you. And some of us are so weak spiritually. Some of us haven't grown. We don't know how to talk to God. We can't remember the last time that we spent just a few minutes of fellowship. 
And for too many of us, our prayers look like this. God, thank you for the food. Thank you for a good day. Bless us with a good night. Bless us with a good day tomorrow. Amen. And God, give me all these things. And I've got all these requests. And I am not, I am not diminishing the importance of requests. God wants and to hear your requests. But where's the fellowship? Where's the interaction? Where, young people, is the, I love you, God. Thank you for making me, giving me life and what you've given to me. Where's the conversation with him? And for many of us, we've been saved long enough to fellowship with God, and we don't. As you grow, you literally gift your God with your presence. I delight in watching my children grow. I stare at them and I creep them out because they'll be doing something and I'm just staring at them and they'll be like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, why are you looking at me like that? I can't explain it. My heart just bursts with joy to look at their faces. I love watching Sophia talk. She's such a happy and good person. I love to spend time with Catherine and listen to her questions and her heart. I love Ethan and David. I, I love spending time with them. I love hearing them and, and just being around them. They break my heart with pride and joy. I just, I just love them. Don't you know God loves you? I can't even begin to describe the love I have for my children. And it pales in comparison to the love that God has for them too. And don't you think God delights in watching you grow? But you got to grow, and you got to do it. you got to make that decision to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. As you grow, it's a gift to God. But it's not just a gift to Him. It's a gift to other people. It's a gift to those you love. Elizabeth and I have been married for several years now. She doesn't need the version of me from the first five years of marriage. Hey, that was a version of me. That was, that, was, that, was, that was me for first five years. But hopefully at the end of five years, I should have been a better husband than I was year one. She doesn't need the version of me from years five through 10 or 10 through 15. She needs a better version of me. She deserves it. And I should be growing. But too often our spouse gets a version of us that's worse than when we got married. And not better. No growth. No grace. No knowledge. Shame on us. We need to be better than that. Still struggling with the same struggles. We just have more wrinkles and flabbier skin. The passage of time is also the passing of opportunity. We should be better parents. We should be a better witness. How long are your excuses of ignorance going to hold up for not sharing your faith? Because Peter says, hey, some things are hard to understand. 
That's a reason to study and work hard. We should be better witnesses, better Christians, better church members. And your growth is a gift to those people. And if you love them, you need to grow. And if you love God, you need to grow. And your growth is a gift to you. Look, you're happier when you grow. You feel deeper satisfaction. Growth begets more growth. Bigger trees make more fruit. One leadership book entitled The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth says this. And I want you to listen carefully because it's what, from this passage I drew, I drew the sermon title. This is the true joy of life. The being used for a purpose. Recognized by yourself as a mighty one. There's a deep-seated satisfaction that we know. Security in our hearts no one else can give us when we're doing right and growing. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do, work, do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I've got to hold on for the moment. And I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Do you see the difference between the person who thinks of themselves, the contributions they're making as a mighty one, or a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making me happy. Peter died being used up for a purpose. He left it all out there. I don't know how he viewed himself, but when I look at this man's life and the words he wrote, and I come to the conclusion of his second chapter and the end of his contribution to God's word, I think to myself, as a mighty one. But you don't have to write a book of the Bible or be an apostle like Peter to be a mighty one. There are people who have quietly served in the background of our church for many years. And they smile more and more, even as their bodies age and give out on them. Their disposition has gotten sweeter, even as they have gone through personal tragedy and physical harm. Their relationship with their spouse and children and friends has become stronger and it has become better. And they just keep growing. And they gift God and they gift us and they gift themselves with their growth. And I would say to you, they may not have written a book of the Bible, but they too are a mighty one. And there is great reward for those are you a mighty one? Are you one of those? Have you grown? Do you have that satisfaction in your heart? You know, I'm not perfect. I'm working on it. I'm working on trying to remove those spots and blemishes. I'm not perfect. But I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm, my marriage is better because of my effort and personal growth. Not worse. My church is better. Because I'm here. 
I, I'm not pulling other people down. I'm not consuming the time of my pastor. I, I'm contributing and I'm helping and I'm serving. I'm a better person. Is your heart cleaner than it used to be? Is your smile more frequent? Are you more kind? Do you help other people more? Do you think about others more and selfless? Do you know God more intimately? Are you growing in grace and knowledge? We need tonight to ask God to help us to grow. We all do.